You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. I want to welcome you to our gathering. I know we already did that, but I just felt like saying, hey, I'm glad you're here. Uh, so glad we get to worship together. Uh, we are currently in a sermon series called Values and Vision. Uh, and we have been basically hearing from different, uh, excuse me, values and voices, not vision. I always mix this sermon series title up. Uh, values and voices. And we've been hearing from different leaders in our church that don't normally uh, speak or teach on Sundays, but, uh, but lead out in specific areas uh, of, these, of this vision that we're talking about. And today we're looking at a value of being a diverse family, a multi-ethnic church family. And we've always valued this kind of internally. This has always been a part of our heart as a church. But over the last 18 months, we've realized that we really need to be more clear and even courageous in this area and, and really grow as a church in this value of what it means to be a diverse family. And so today we're actually going to get to hear from Austin Shower. Austin, if you want to come on up, uh, I'll introduce Austin a bit. Get, yeah, give him a hand. Um, Austin, God has really used Austin uh, as a catalyst to kind of lead us in this conversation over the last 18 months. Austin and his wife Lauren and their girls have been a part of our church really almost from day one, probably eight plus years. Uh, they lead the, the Redbud Gospel community. Austin is the uh, Round Rock Young Life Director. And really in so many ways, just want to honor you guys. Y'all have been such a rock in this church such a core part of this family, and really part of the reason why Redeemer is what it is is because of uh, the Shower family, and so they've just been a huge part, and so awesome, man, we're honored, I'm honored to have you preach today. Uh, I'm so encouraged by what you have done in our church, and just want to pray over you as you get started that, that God really use this word to continue to help us grow as a diverse family, and so let me, let me just pray over you, brother. Father, uh, thank you for Austin. Thank you for the things you've been working in his heart and, um, God, the things that you've also led uh, him to lead us in as a church. Um, God, I pray that you would use this word um, that, that really calls us toward your vision in Revelation 7 of, of every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping you. Help us to be a, a more accurate reflection of that in our city. God, I thank you for the team that Austin leads, uh, the, the, the multi-ethnic advocacy team, and, and all the work that you've done. And I pray, God, this morning that you would just speak to us, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, that we would be convicted where we need to be convicted. And ultimately, Jesus, that this church would look more like your bride, uh, more like who you've called us to be because of this word. It is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. <clears throat> all right. Can y'all hear me out there? Yes. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, well, while I kind of get set up up here, um, as you can probably imagine, this is quite the topic, and I've got uh, 30 minutes, and so I'm just going to kind of jump in uh, and get us going. So I just kind of want to address something on the front end uh, that I just want you to hear me say out loud for for me and for our church, uh, and it's this, is that everybody in this room is on a journey when it comes to the conversation around race and diversity and how we should think about it as the church. Everybody is on a journey, and it is a long journey for all of us. 
And I want you to hear this morning that wherever you are on that journey is right where you need to be. That there is not any part of me, the church, or Jesus hurrying you along. The God of the universe is not in a hurry. And so wherever you are on this kind of journey in the conversation around race, diversity, and the good news of Jesus, you're right where you need to be. And here is the heart of myself and our church, is that we do not desire to come and kind of pull you along in your journey. It's not our role. Our role is really to come alongside you and give you the next step. And so I hope that this morning, if anything, is just simply that, that you would feel that our church and myself and our team is coming alongside you right where you are on this journey, and we're giving you the next step. And so this morning, as we kind of jump in, I want to start at a place that really kind of regardless of where you are on the journey, where I am on the journey, I want us to start at a place in which I think we would all probably say yes and amen to. I want us to start kind of with the end in mind. And so if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn to Revelation. If not, it'll be behind me on the screen. It says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so in Revelation, what we are kind of being, the picture that's being painted is our future reality. That whether we like it or not, this is where we're headed. That one day, this reality of every tribe, tongue, and nation will be ours. But what I also want you to hear is that I don't believe this vision in Revelation is only meant to be a future reality. I believe that it is the job of the church to usher this reality in here and now. And I know that the American church is very far from experiencing this. And I'm going to stick really talking about the American church and even the origins of the American church today in some level. But we're very far from experiencing this. I get that. I get that it feels like an uphill battle because it is. But here's one of my deepest convictions, that our pursuit as the church towards a multi-ethnic family is not optional. It's not something that Jesus kind of says, hey, take it, or, take it or leave it up to you. That he gives us this vision and it is our job and our command and we've been commissioned and empowered to usher this future reality in to the here and the now. And so this morning, I want to take us from kind of this throne image in Revelation, and I want to bring us to the table. A pastor out of California named Albert Tate would say it this way. If we're going to stand at the throne, we've got to be able to sit at the table. That if one day we are going to stand at the throne, we've got to be able to sit at the family table. And here is what is unique about this table. 
It's not a table that we gather around because we have the same hobbies, the same tax bracket, or the same political views. We gather around this table because we have the same father. That's the reason that you and I gather around this table is not because we have anything alike in that sense, but we gather around the table because we have the same father. And here's the image that I want for you to carry, not only throughout this morning, but throughout this conversation for really the rest of your journey would be this. That God the Father is calling his kids to the family table. He's calling a family meeting. And as we get there, we're a little bit rowdy and distracted. But as he kind of pulls us in and we're all leaning in and paying attention, he begins to unfold this beautiful vision of a multi-ethnic, diverse family. And he paints this picture of revelation for us. And then at the end of it, he says, you get to be a part of it. You get to be a part of ushering this reality in to the now. And so here is my plea on the front end. I'll show you my cards. Here is what I'm asking of you. Would you come to the table and would you stay at the table? Would you come to the table And would you stay at the table? Here is why that is so important. In any relationship, if there is a fear of the other person leaving, we never feel like we can be truly who we are. We never feel like we can be vulnerable and honest because there's this underlying fear that they might leave. And so often this conversation in a church doesn't actually get any traction because there's this underlying fear that if I'm really honest about my experiences in my life, that people are going to jet. They're going to get up and walk out the door and leave the table. And so if we're going to create a culture at Redeemer in which this conversation continues, is normalized, and is safe, we've got to stay at the table. There will be moments that it will be uncomfortable. There will be moments that you will feel emotions that you don't want to feel. And I'm asking you, would you stay? If we leave, we miss out on the blessing of a multi-ethnic, diverse family. And so my plea, my beg to you this morning is would you come to the table and would you stay as we at Redeemer enter into this conversation and and we continue this conversation for as long as we exist. And so this morning, I want you to know that this conversation is a family conversation. It's a conversation for the church. It's a conversation specifically for our church. So again, this image of God pulling us around the family table and saying, hey, I gotta tell you something. Pay attention and don't go anywhere. With that, if you got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 2, and we'll pick it up. Quick background on Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians, kind of one of the major themes of Ephesians is unity. He comes out even in uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 7, Paul outlines this. He says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace 
which he lavished upon us all in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Pay attention here. As a plan for the fullness of time. And what is this plan? To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. And so as Paul jumps into this letter to the church of Ephesus, he's making something incredibly clear, and it's this, that the reconciling power of the gospel is bigger than we think, that it has the power to unite all things on heaven and on earth, that this reconciling power is something that is so unimaginable, that there's not an area of life that it doesn't touch. There's not an area of life that it says, that it doesn't say that it can redeem and reconcile and unify. The gospel touches every area of life and has the reconciling power to change everything. And so as we step into chapter two of Ephesians, Paul is gonna start by speaking of this reconciling power in action. Ephesians 2. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul comes out hot, not holding back any punches, and he paints this picture that's really bleak. And essentially it's this. You're dead and you're separated. You're dead and you're separated. And what I want you to notice specifically about these first three verses is the communal language in which he's speaking. So it's good to know that as he wrote this letter, as he was thinking, as faces were popping in his mind as he's writing this letter, it's to a people. That this letter is written to the church at Ephesus. It's meant to be read aloud to a people. It's also meant to be circulated around in that area and read to a people. That it's a communal letter. And so even on the front end when it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Those yous are plural. And then he goes on. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And then he ends, like the rest of mankind. And so he's using this communal language to speak something over all of humanity, that our willful separation from God is a shared trait of all of us. That whether we like it or not, we have unity in our sin. That it's part of the story of the gospel is that you and I have unity in our sin. And just like there's nothing that God's reconciling power doesn't touch, there's also nothing that sin and its effects don't touch. Everything has been fractured. 
everything has been broken. Nothing is the way that it's supposed to be in ourselves, in our lives, and in our world. The reality is, is that you and I have moments where we look out over the world and we think to ourselves, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And we also have moments in the quiet of the night when we lay our head down on our pillow where we think to ourselves, I am not the way I'm supposed to be. That there is a commonality in all of humanity that we're living in a world that is not the way that it's supposed to be. And Paul starts here by reminding us who we were apart from God for a reason. He doesn't do this because he's a Debbie Downer and wants to make us sad. There's a more intentional reason. He does this because the first two words in verse 4, the way that that lands with us and the way that we receive those two words is directly connected to our understanding of the first three verses. That but God in verse 4, the way that lands, the way we receive that is directly connected to our understanding of the first three verses. This past month, my family got to spend a, a month in Colorado at a Young Life camp uh, helping give kind of high school students from around the, around the country the best week of their life. And part of my role was that every week I got to share my story to the 200-plus high school students that were in the room, all of them strangers. And how it kind of worked was on one day I would share kind of my first part of my story, so kind of the verse 1 through 3 of my story, and then on the second day I would share the latter part of my story. And so I remember that day three when I shared my first part of my story, I would get up and I would share my story, and then right after I would kind of sit on a panel with three or four people, and high school students would ask me any question they wanted. And I remembered in those moments feeling like I had to like go back to who I was before Jesus and recall what I was thinking and feeling and who I was. And it felt like for the rest of the day, I just was kind of sad. Just a somberness about me. I just felt off. It's like I had to relive that story. I didn't want to. What I also realized was that next morning at 10.30, I got to share the second part of my story. And I remember waking up every morning of that second day with some giddiness. That all of my high school friends that got to hear kind of this who I was before Jesus was fixing to hear about the reconciling power of God in my life. And I had not in a long time just kind of recalled my story in the way that I did over the course of that month. But what I remember was as I recalled the bitterness of my life before Jesus, the sweetness of my life with Jesus was way sweeter. It was way better. And this is what Paul is setting us up for. He said, I want you to remember and taste the bitterness of life apart from God not because I want you to stay there, but because I'm abundantly aware that the story's not over. That as you recall who you were before Jesus, you can also do that in a hope of what's next. And so he is setting us up 
for the next part of Ephesians, starting in verse 4. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That Paul is setting us up in the first three verses to come face to face with the goodness and power of God. That at the first three verses, we kind of feel this longing for surely there's more to the story. And Paul says, there is, let me tell you about it. And then on display for all to see, he outlines the goodness and the power of God in the lives of all people. And don't miss that the communal language continues. There's a great love in which he loved us, that we were dead in our trespasses, that he's made us alive together, that he's raised us up and seated us with him to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. We are his workmanship, and he's prepared good works that we would walk in them. Friends, our stories, our nuances of our stories and experiences are vast, and they are different. But at the core of who we are and at the foundation of our stories, it's the same. We were dead and now we're alive. Your life, your past, your family may be vastly different than mine, but we can stack hands on this reality. We were dead and now we're alive. That just as we had unity in our sin, we as the people of God have unity in our salvation. And so at the end of these 10 verses, there's a couple things that are of first importance. First is that God has saved a people. This was his original design. As he promises a special family to Abraham, as he calls Israel to himself, that God from the beginning has been about saving a people. Yes, you and I are individuals within this people, absolutely. But from the very beginning of the creation story, from the very beginning of the redemption story of the gospel, God has promised to be saving a people to himself. And in the last part of this in verse 10, something else we can't miss, is that God has created and made good works prepared for this people. That these good works that he's prepared beforehand is for this people that he has saved to himself. This was the point of Israel. 
to show all the nations around them how God, how good God is, what he's like. They were to reveal to the world what God is like. And so the, the, really the role of the people of God isn't to come to a place and worship him for all that he's done, but it's to display to the world the reconciling power of God in our lives and in the world. That we are a people meant to display to the world God's reconciling power. That this whole salvation story is bigger than you and bigger than me. It is about a people for eternity that he is calling and saving to himself. And while this part of Ephesians is incredible and we could spend hours upon hours staying in these 10 verses, Paul doesn't stop there. He keeps going and it keeps getting better. See, Paul's not landing the plane as we go into verse 11. He's not flipping the page, but he's gearing it up. He's revving up the engine. He's saying, get ready, I'm not done And he starts, verse 11, by saying, therefore, again, to recall to us, remember everything we just talked about. In light of everything I just communicated to you in these first 10 verses, I've got more to tell you. And he starts in verse 11 and says, therefore, remember, that word again to pay attention to, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Just like Paul did in the first three verses, he paints this really bleak picture. In the first three verses of this chapter, he really outlines this idea that we are separated from God. And then he takes us one more step in verses 11 and 12. And he reminds us of our separation from each other. That sin does not just separate us from God, but it separates us from each other. The early church that we recall in Acts is beautiful, but it's not without its own problems. We often can talk about Acts 2 and fantasize about Acts 2, and I love Acts 2, but if you flip a couple pages, it goes bad quick. That in Acts 6, these two groups of people, the Hellenists and the Hebrews, come to the church leaders. We find out that the Hellenists, which is these Greek-speaking Jews, that the widows of that that group of people are being ignored in the daily distribution of food. But they were seen as kind of less than in that society and in that community, and they said they're just kind of being ignored. So they went and told the leaders of the church, early church, hey, we've got some division happening, some partiality happening that we've got to address. And then in Galatians 2, Paul recalls this moment he has with Peter. Kind of imagine Paul sitting at a table in a cafeteria watching Peter. Peter's eating with the Gentiles, basically people that aren't Jews. He's hanging out with them. And all of a sudden, these really important Jewish leaders walk through the door. 
And it's almost like uh, Paul gets or Peter gets caught red-handed, and he kind of like jumps up, and then he starts to go and eat with the Jewish folks again. And then Paul recalls how all of a sudden Barnabas and a whole group of Jewish people get up from the Gentile table and head over to the Jewish table. And Paul enters in and he rebukes Peter and says, no, 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 that is not okay. You're not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. That as beautiful as the early church was, there was divisions and separation, that there were cultural norms that had bled in to this people that God had began to create. There were cultural norms that had bled in to this new family that God was creating. And again, Paul is not recalling these realities to be a Debbie Downer, but he has a reason. And the reason is the first two words of verse 13. But now. The way that that lands with us, the way that we receive that is completely dependent on us understanding our separation from each other. Paul is asking them to look back, to recognize and pay attention to the historical separations for the sake of them moving together and forward in unison. James Baldwin would say it this way, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. See, friends, Paul's making them look back, and here is why. Because God just called us to the table, and he's giving us a new vision for a new family. But if we're going to create a new family, we've got to look at our family of origin. Who here has done premarital counseling before you got married? Great. Probably other people in the room maybe have led a premarital class. Well, one of the kind of the basic premises as you get married in premarital counseling is you are creating a new family as you become one. And one of the first things, hopefully, that you talk about in premarital counseling is that if we are going to move forward and create a new family, we've got to be aware of where we come from. That we're crazy to think that our family of origin doesn't have an effect on who we are today. Probably the greatest effect on who we are today. And so we call people to look back at their family of origin before we call them to go forward to this new family. Rich Viotis would say this, pastor out of uh, Queens, New York. Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. See, in this conversation, one of the primary things that I hear is, Austin, can't we just preach the gospel? Like, we're, we're, we're getting out of bounds here. Like, stay on course, stay in your lane, preach the gospel. And what's become abundantly clear to me over the past two and a half years is that this language, just preach the gospel, is inherited language. This is inherited language from our family of origin, specifically our family of origin in the American church. That this idea of just preach the gospel, stay in your lane, has been going around 
for centuries. It's an age-old response. Raymond Chong, a Korean man who is the student, one of the student pastors of Wheaton College in Chicago, says it this way. Lamentably, any honest look at history will reveal that the church has been the soil for many of the harmful attitudes and perspectives leading to the many racial injustices that we see today. That if we're honest with ourselves and we look back on the history and origins of the American church, yes, there are things to celebrate, absolutely, but there are some things we have to look at that are painful, that make us uncomfortable. But if we are going to move forward in unison, we've got to look back at our separated and segregated past. And so I want to highlight three major events in the history of the American church. This is not a comprehensive list by any means, but my hope here would be give us some points that maybe help us understand why we are where we are today in the American church when it comes to the conversation around race, diversity, and the gospel. These are three things that caught my eye as I have done some research and study on this, but more than caught my eye, there are three things that have absolutely broken my heart as I think about our history. The first happened in 1667. It was a decision made by the Virginia General Assembly. They had quite a big decision to make, and here was the question at hand. Would baptism render slaves free? Would baptism render slaves free? There was an established tradition in England at that time among Christians that the answer is yes, it does. But as they are baptized, they are a part of this new family that God has created. They are family members. They're brothers and sisters. You cannot own them anymore. They are not yours to own. It was an established tradition. But they were in a predicament because the economy depended on slave labor. I don't have to tell you this. And so slave owners actually discouraged their slaves from hearing the gospel and being baptized out of a fear of losing their labor. And yet at the same time, you have this rush of missionaries that are coming in saying, no, no, we've got to evangelize the slaves. We've got to tell them about Jesus. We've got to give them an option to salvation. And so they're in this predicament of what do I do? If we say yes to baptism, do I lose all of my slave labor and all of my money? But man, I do care about their souls. And so what did they do? Well, in September 1667, they enacted a new law, and it reads like this. It is enacted and declared by this, jan- this grand assembly and the authority thereof that the conferring of baptism does not alter the condition of the person as to his bondage or freedom. Masters, freed from this doubt, may more carefully endeavor the propagation of Christianity by permitting children, those slaves, or those of greater growth, if capable, to be admitted to that sacrament. 
You can keep that up there for a second. I, I can't tell you what to feel, but this should make you feel something. That there was a conscious decision from an assembly made primarily of Anglican Christian men to make this a law that you could baptize slaves and yet still own them and keep them in bondage. As I wrote this down last night, something caught my eye. Mastered, freed from this doubt that was what was more important to this group than freeing a people made in the image of God from oppression was freeing the masters from their doubt. That from the very beginning, what is happening this is before America exists. This is the Virginia colony, but this is the start of the Western church into America. Is this before this even goes on? Here's what is happening right now at the origins of the American church. We are separating this individual conversion to God and this liberation of humans from bondage that we are separating the vertical realities of the reconciliation from, of, with God from the horizontal implications that cause us to enter into the places that are dark, wrong, and evil and make them right. The next example is the first great awakening. One of the leading American, the leading American voice in the first great awakening was Jonathan Edwards known as one of America's greatest theologians. That if we're honest, we could probably trace back a lot of our faith ancestry to Edwards and his impact and influences cannot be measured. I mean, unbelievable. One of the greatest theologians and leaders of the church we've ever seen. And yet, he owns slaves. What that doesn't mean is that we cancel Jonathan Edwards. That's unhelpful. But it does reveal something to us that I think is incredibly important. That like many in his day, he represented a widespread view of slavery. That he agreed with spiritual equality. He agreed with salvation for all. And yet his concern for slaves did not extend to him using his platform to fight for their liberation. Instead, he owned them. Again, we don't cancel him, but here's the Christian framework that he is setting out for one of the greatest revivalist movements of all time. That there's, again, a focus on individual conversion and yet an ignorance to confronting institutional injustices. That this whole thing at the end of the day is about me and Jesus having a personal relationship with God, that's it. Has no implications on my life, has no implications on injustices we see in our world. That this is the framework that early in the American church is being built for us. And then lastly, Richard Allen, he was born a slave in 1760, became a Christian in 1777, he was freed in 1786. And he became a regular preacher at a church in Philadelphia. In 1792, he and one of his friends entered this very church. 
that he preached at regularly. And unknowingly, they sat down in a section that was reserved for white parishioners. They knelt down, they began to pray, but they were soon, they were interrupted by some white trustees of this church. They were pulled off of their knees, ushered out of the section, and taken out of the church. When they asked Richard Allen about this later, he said this, we all went out of the church in a body and they were no more plagued with us in the church. There was a group of people that walked into this church and felt like a plague, that they did not belong, they were not welcomed. Richard Allen was a great man. He actually went to pursue reconciliation with the church and said, hey, if it's going to be this way, can you help raise some money alongside me to start a different congregation, a black congregation? And the church said no, and if you try to do it, there will be church, um, there will be some church discipline involved. And so he leaves that meeting, and he starts a new church in Philadelphia in 1794, And in 1816, he becomes one of the founders of the African Methodist Episcopal denomination, the AME, the largest African-American denomination in the world. Eric Mason, when recalling this, says this, the black church started because the white church wasn't being the church. The black church exists because the white church wasn't being the church. Period. The end. I don't know how that lands with you, but here's what I want you to know. This is our history. These are our origins as the American church. And just like we have to be reminded of our life apart from God to truly appreciate our salvation in God, We must face the reality of our church family of origin in order to truly appreciate God's vision for a new family. That if we want to experience a future unity, we must face our separated past. Martin Luther King is famous for saying that the most segregated hour of the week is 11 o'clock on Sundays. And y'all, here is my honest fear. That in 1667, when they make this law that baptism does not actually free slaves, when we make laws, oftentimes they become norms. And these norms seep into the church, this new family that God has created. And my fear is that the segregated church that we see today in America just feels normal. That it's just going to kind of be the way it's going to be. That's just the plan. The Jesus is sitting up on his thumb thinking, hey, man, I had this plan for like a multi-ethnic church. Didn't go as planned. Y'all just do what you want. That just because it's become normal in our culture, in our society, does not mean that it aligns with the kingdom of God. And this grieves the heart of Jesus. And I believe in many levels it makes him angry. And so here's what I want you to hear. That this brief history of our story of the American church is true. But 
God. But God is not done writing the story of the church. Just like he's not done writing our story, that there's more to the story, he's not done writing the story of the American church. He's up to something. And so Paul, in the next few verses, is going to remind us of this pathway forward. That he's looked back and he's reminded us that we are a people divided, and now he's going to display God's reconciling power to unify us Again, and it picks up in verse 13. It says, But now, in who? In Christ Jesus. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the family table with our Father. There's a couple things that I think we've got to to land on in this couple of verses. There's language in these verses that his original readers would have taken them back to a place, primarily when he talks about him breaking down this wall of hostility. They would have immediately thought about the temple. The temple was kind of divided by these courts, and all these courts were divided by these walls. They would have also immediately thought about the account of Jesus walking into the temple and seeing these money changers selling and exchanging money, walking out of the temple, making a whip and coming back and flipping over tables and losing his mind. They would have recalled that. And oftentimes, as we think about that story, we can can think that his anger comes from this kind of commercialization of a very sacred place. Now, while I think that's partially true, I think his rebuke in that account tells us more. His rebuke says this, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. See, what was happening was all this money changing and commercialization. Do you know where it was happening in the temple? the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus walks in knowing these people have made a trek from all over to come to the very place that represents the presence of God. And these Gentiles walk into the place that is reserved for them to worship and it's chaos. And it's loud. And it's distracting. And at the end of a long trip when all they want to do is sit down and worship God, they can't because it is overrun with money changers. And Jesus is saying, no more. There are going to be no more hindrances and distractions from all nations coming to worship me. And so when he talks about this dividing wall of hostility, he's literally talking about tearing down the walls 
to create one path where we all have access in one spirit to the Father. That why Jesus was angry was because there was not equal access to the Father in that moment. And he lost his mind. That injustice makes Jesus angry. And if I'm going to be really honest with you, the American church has been really good at resurrecting walls that Christ has already torn down. We have been really good at resurrecting walls that Christ has already torn down. But what's the point of him dividing this wall or breaking down this wall of hostility? It says in 15, that he might create in himself one new man, a new people, a new family. That four times in these verses, he uses this word one. Takes us back to John 17. When Jesus is talking to his father in the garden, the high, high priestly prayer, He's saying, God, when you give me these people, would they be perfectly one? That Paul is connecting to the very heart of Jesus in this passage. That he is dividing down the wall in order to make one new family, one new people. That this is at the very heart of Jesus. And when a people once separated become one, something beautiful happens. We become a new kind of family that the world has never seen. Verse 19 through 22 says, So then you, no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple with no walls, all having equal access to the Father. And in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The culmination of this passage is he is leading us to this vision that he gathered us around the table on the front end to tell us. I am creating a new family and I have done all that needs to be done to accomplish it. It is finished. It is yours. And now you have a role in ushering it in to our current reality that we may be a kind of family that the world has no explanation for. And so here's my final word. The the simple invitation this morning is this, is that our church is committed to continuing this conversation for as long as we exist. And it's a conversation. It's not a one-off sermon, not a box we check. We don't just talk about it when we see racial injustices in society. It is an ongoing conversation. And so the invitation this morning is, would you join the conversation? Would you come to the table 
And would you stay? Would you come to the table and would you stay? Let me pray. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. They may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord Jesus, may it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.